Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Swineweb, Johnsonville Foods, Hypor Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Roder, your host, and joining us today is Dr. Aaron Kettlecamp and Andy Holtkamp. How are you guys doing today? Doing great, Matt. Thank you. Likewise, Matt. So today we're going to be talking about biosecurity. That's going to be the main theme, but there's a it's probably a more dynamic biosecurity episode than I think I'd ever done in the past. And we got some new fun things along the way. If we could just start by having Aaron, you introducing yourself, your background, what you do today, and how you got involved with the pork industry, that'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, Aaron Kettlecamp. Um, I'm a veterinarian with Swine Vet Center based out of St. Peter, Minnesota. Um, I've been here ever since I graduated vet school um, since 2021. And so I went to vet school at the University of Illinois, um, actually did my undergraduate there as well. Um really got into swine, not until I was, it was after my first year of vet school, actually. Um, I ended up staying on campus that summer and worked in a research lab there uh, with Dr. Jim Lowe, and he was, became one of my advisors. Um, and so naturally, we, we kind of got into some swine projects for the summer, um, happened to be relating to biosecurity at the time. And really, I didn't have much of the commercial context um, at that time, really just enjoyed the research side of things, really enjoyed the lab that I was working with and said, holy cow, I had no idea that this is what pig vets did. Uh, And so I kept growing my network from there, um, spent some time in the field that summer and uh, found interest in doing the SFIP program um, that Iowa State hosts the following summer. And it did a full summer internship in swine production and health uh, continued spiraling from there. And the rest is history Um, because previously I did grow up on a farm in Northern Illinois, but that was all mostly row crop, really no commercial swine experience there other than maybe a handful of pigs that we had to to feed out from time to time for fun. So (laughs) I was just with Jim and the university of Illinois on Thursday and Friday, they had this ag tech meeting of the minds to try to figure out how they drive progress in the swine industry and the University of Illinois and really admire him for trying to make progress in that area. But uh, he told me he got there. He's like, all right, I need you to sit in the audience. And when when people are talking, I need you to poke the bear, ask the hard <laughs> questions that get people going. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because that's usually uh, the job he assigns himself. So <laughs> there's never a dull moment around there. <laughs> yeah, he, he was driving the whole thing. So I don't think he, he could jump in uh, and, and do it all himself. So that was funny. Uh, Andy, Andy, can you introduce yourself and your background and how you got involved in the industry? Yeah, sure. Well, I uh, graduated uh, quite a few years earlier than Dr. Kettlecap did. I graduated from vet school in 93 from uh, Mississippi State University. 
uh, Rick Tubbs was kind of my mentor and uh, at the at that point in time and really really uh, wanted to understand the industry and so our program at the time allowed us our senior year kind of to leave school and just go see the industry and I was raising a few pigs had buying pigs out of sale barn was kind of really my end and and uh worked with Dr. Tubbs on the health and the and feeding of those pigs that we were buying at Sailborn to sell Brian Foods. And honestly, I kind of reached out to some feedlot veterinarians to do uh, some externships for senior year, and they weren't really cooperative on where to stay and, and uh, how, how much it was going to cost to stay going out to West Texas versus the first swine practitioner I called at the time. They said, oh, you can just stay with us and put us up, and everyone was like that, and I was kind of sold after that, you know, as a – you know, how welcoming the swine industry was to young kids coming out of school. So, uh, it, you know, it's a kind of a fascinating industry, too, because, you know, you as a veterinarian, you get to control uh, the health from uh, conception to harvest time. Uh, and very, you know, outside of the poultry industry, you know, a lot of other species, we can't do that because there's uh, so it's uh, intellectually, it's, it's very interesting that way. So, yeah, I guess the more formal introduction would have been Dr. Andy Holtkamp. And it's <laughs> kind of funny because uh, the other day I was recording a podcast episode with a Kirsten, a Kristen, and another Kristen. And I can't tell you how difficult that you got to be very mindful. And now I got a kettle camp and a Holt camp. So I'm going to keep everything straight here. Well, but, and, there's, uh, and there's two Holt camps in the swine industry now. So, you know, kind of. <laughs> The more famous one at Iowa State spells his name with a K, and I spell mine with a C. So, yeah, you're not making anybody's life easier. Are you? <laughs> yeah. Well, so one new thing I've been doing on the podcast sooner or later I won't call it new. And I'm when I'm doing these is uh, pig news of the day. So we've had some very interesting stories. I swear I'm not cherry picking. Today on October 31st, a runaway pig named Kevin Bacon is back home with his Gettysburg, Pennsylvania family after a 17-day ordeal. And it says a cinnamon bun filled with Benadryl may have helped corral the 200-pound animal. So apparently this, and it looks like a pot belly pig, but apparently this pig was running around. They couldn't catch it, and they had to drug it up to catch it. Um, you can't you can't make those things up. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so, Aaron, typically what I do is ask some rapid-fire questions, and Andy, I'm going to get you looped in as well. Um, first, going to ask each of you, you've kind of answered it, but what is the school that you root for uh, in college sports? Oh, yes. It'd be Illinois for me, um, regrettably some days, <laughs> but <laughs> it's there. <laughs> How about you, Andy? Well, it's typically Mississippi State, but then I got a few schools that it's whoever they're playing against. So, <laughs> gotcha. What is your each of your ideal cut of pork? Ooh, I like some good slow cooked ribs. Those always hit the spot. I like a Texas. Uh, what do they call that? The Texas steak, where they cut the front shoulder in the steaks. Oh, I don't think I've had that. Oh yeah, definitely recommend that as well. Mm-hmm. Huh? What about? each of your bucket list destinations for travel? For me, I'd go over to Europe and spend time in Italy. I think that'd be a blast. Florida Keys. What about your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> oh, man. I'd say for me, it's hard to pick one, 
But more or less, if anything Disney came on, that would be hard to pass up. Oh, you are like my wife. She <laughs> would do Disney Power Hour at a karaoke bar any day of the week if she could. <laughs> I would. I don't karaoke at all. I just hang out with the Minnesota runner-up champ, Doctor Fitzsimmons. If we got to go to a karaoke bar, <laughs> karaoke place. And then uh, last one is: What is your favorite actor or actress? Or least favorite actor or actress? Ooh, least favorite. I have no true reason for this, but just Adam Sandler. I just don't enjoy watching him for some reason. I just, nope, can't do it. <laughs> that, that is literally one in my mind where I was like, you know, maybe this is an Adam Sandler day. And I'm not allowed to watch movies with Adam Sandler with my wife because she, he annoys the hell out of her too. So, um, <laughs> You guys have a lot of comments. Me, me and your wife might need to be friends. About <laughs> <laughs> you, Andy? I, I don't know. I got one. Either way. So around today's theme around biosecurity, a uh, few things. I just kind of want to share some thoughts that that I've had and things that have come in. Um, and I really want to know from the both of you and and real Aaron, uh, since you're real the the special guest today. How common are some of the challenges that that I'm going to be going through? Um, so, when I talk to producers, some some say, as a veterinarian, I'm so stinking busy, it's hard to find time as an organization to sit down and really dig into transportation biosecurity. Another is the ideal selected product for a veterinarian doesn't fit the cost initiatives or cost constraints of the system. And so you might get stuck with a product you don't you don't have a lot of confidence in. How real or one-off could, could those situations be? Does that resonate well with some of the challenges, challenges a veterinarian has to think through? Yeah, I would say absolutely. And so to your first question on just time as a veterinarian to focus on, on transport biosecurity, I mean, I've, for myself, I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I, I've come out of school with that more as a focus. And so that would be a specialty that I would offer to our clientele. Um, but speaking kind of on behalf of the larger group, I mean, with everything going 100 miles a minute every day, especially this time of year as we get into colder weather and diseases on the move, um, really can get into a habit of just needing to put out fires <laughs> that happen every day. And sometimes digging into, you know, some of the prevention um, and detail work that's required of some biosecurity tasks, it, it can be really time consuming, no doubt. Um and so it's absolutely a limiting factor today if, it, if it's not made a priority. So, and then let's see, what was your second question? The cost <laughs> side of it, uh, oh, choosing okay. the ideal product versus kind of getting stuck with something that fits the cost, but you don't have a lot of confidence in it. Sure. And I think that it's very case by case dependent on any producer that I would work with today. Sometimes, man, People will pay a million dollars just to hit the easy button. If you tell me that it reduces labor and I don't have to worry about a thing afterwards, then they'll shell out the money and it's it's no questions asked, kind of depending on what their goals are. Other cases, it's you know asking them to spend an extra five cents, you know, on something down the road, and it can be like pulling teeth to to make an improvement of, and, and really got to back it up with the data. So, case by case, but cost is always a driver, um, and that cost benefit analysis, I think, is looked at differently, um, system to system and, and person to person. 
So when I when we started the podcast and when I meet with producers and I ask them about ideas for episodes and when we meet, um, most of them say, be straightforward, be honest. And sometimes honest is controversial. So for people listening, this episode, when we prep for this one, we're like, you know what? We're going to get on the soapbox and we're going to say some things that might not be popular, but probably need to be said. So I don't know what those are going to be and if they necessarily show up, but just throwing it out there. One of the challenges that we had talked about uh, preparing for this and where a lot of the questions break down is this idea that when a producer is focused on biosecurity and focused on spending money, either the farm is healthy and you don't need it, or the farm is just battling disease and we're too dang busy to make a change now or it's too late. And I assimilated that with labor a bit and solutions to try to help with labor. Either we're fully staffed and everything's going well, or we're understaffed and shit's hitting the fan and we don't have time to try something new. And it just seems to be this never-ending cycle that continues to bite producer to producer. And I want to say it's a one-off, doesn't mean this is everybody, but it seems to happen a lot and it seems to be a recurring frustration. What are your guys' thoughts on that statement? I know we talked a little bit, but curious what you guys would add to that. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in there and I, I'd kind of quote back to, you know, things I've heard from very knowledgeable producers. And oftentimes when we lack a crisis, one almost needs to be created. Otherwise, complacency can become a very um, unfortunate habit. And so I think you're exactly right. When when things are going well, I get less calls on biosecurity. <laughs> you know, we need less audits. I don't need an outbreak investigation. All of a sudden, the focus is somewhere else um, in driving production. And so I think that's very real today. About you, Andy? Yeah, it's a. Uh, you know, we've kind of dug into with the disinfected side of uh, what we're doing, talking about today. We kind of dug into just kind of variation within within a disinfecting process within truck watches. And I guess I'm kind of amazed and honestly a bit disappointed in, in uh, lack of response of our producers wanting to collect data to really understand what is truly going on in their truck and watches rather than we just complain about it a lot. Um, you know, some of that's, you know, that's, and then we're kind of talking about devices that can kind of evaluate the process ongoing and, so some of that's a you know a perspective of the employees don't like Big Brother looking at them and watch it over their shoulder. Uh, some of that's a, a perspective you know it ends up being more data and how do we handle that you know even even as in supervisor roles you know you want something quick and easy to look at. So, but you know we do do a lot of complaining, but at sometimes I think the industry kind of we don't want to look deeper because we just don't want to know. Yeah, we were at that uh, innovation event I was at, and a lot of them, often the discussion is the implementation has to be easy, if not unnoticeable altogether, because right. people feel completely overwhelmed with being understaffed or uh, everything that's on their plate. It's almost like, yeah, we really want a solution, but if I'm truly going to use a solution, it almost is going to have to require none of my time, which is really good to hear and the honesty is awesome but i think if we're going to find solutions that are going to solve some of the biggest parts of our industry we're going to have to start planning 
that into our time. It's it's going to take time to solve the biggest problems. I don't think the biggest problems can be completely unnoticeable or a low time time investment. Uh, you guys agree with that? Yeah, I I would, and I think that's the focus I'm seeing out in the field is is the continuing pressure of a of course cost efficiency, how can we do things with less labor um, and at equal, if not better, biosecurity than what we're doing today. And so I, I think that'll drive a lot of change, knowing that our labor pool is, is not becoming more plentiful or lower cost <laughs> as we move forward. I mean, there's reduced risk of variation there, right? If we, don't, if we have 10 people doing something instead of 20 people, it's, I mean, you kind of know where to look, which should make the management side of it a little easier. But at the end of the day, uh, that with less people enforcing and driving all of that, there's less people to focus on it and and to to have ongoing improvement. Uh, so it sounds like that's going to be really hard. Yeah, it's it's it'll be an uphill climb, but we'll we'll have to start climbing somewhere. So the main theme today around biosecurity is going to be truck wash biosecurity, and there's a really cool study that was done by NC State University where they used a computer model to understand how African swine fever might spread amongst swine farms in southeastern United States. And they actually picked the area, ran um, oh movement data on over 2,000 facilities, and then had 230,000 different simulations, each occurring over a 140-day time period. And the results came out that 71% of the ASF transmission was from transportation biosecurity and obviously this article goes into much more depth on that but i think that's the main reason why we really want to focus on transportation biosecurity over the last few years it's become clearer and clearer and clearer if we're going to have a problem it's becoming it's going to come from moving pigs between sites so aaron can you talk about the importance of truck wash biosecurity and where we might be today as an industry yeah, absolutely. Um, and truck wash biosecurity, it's a, it can become a very forgotten leg of a lot of companies, I think. You know, it's something that can also often be contracted out. And it's certainly an area that maybe we're not routinely checking in on or or measuring. And and that becomes tricky because right, washing a trailer and anything relating to sanitation can be very subjective. It's hard to measure clean versus dirty. Um in a very objective way uh, and in a data-driven way. And so today, you know, within the network that we have, I mean, you have a truck and you also have a tractor or a truck cab that kind of goes with it. And after you've, you know, left barn A, those diverge and actually go two different routes. And so if you come in contact with a dirty site and think of those splitting up, um, you know, driver drops a trailer to get washed or wherever it may need to go. And then the driver contracts maybe back out and goes, picks up a new trailer and continues on his day. And so if both of those are contaminated and never get fully washed, then that kind of doubles the spider web of events that you can kind of picture um, of those go back and forth throughout our system. And so lots have, can be interconnected. Um, of course, all of the sites and, and movements therein. Uh, we're thinking about all the places that trailers go, including packing plants and all of that. And so that, that interconnects not only your system, but then you to plenty of other systems if you don't have your own packing plant today as well. What are some of the risks that we are facing right now when it comes to the transportation system? 
I think there's a lot of risk involved in opportunity. I think we do a good job trying to focus on trailers uh, performing movements between high health herds. And, and that definition can be whatever it needs to look like, whether you're a commercial producer, or maybe you have multiplication. Um, you're you're going to focus on whatever's at the top of your pyramid that you have to manage. And, and I think overall, you know, that's done done well to the sense of, yes, we expect clean trailers only to maybe show up to these high health herds. They're at least going to see a wash and disinfection process to whatever standard um, before they move. However, as we go kind of down the pyramid scheme and as costs incur, we, we tend to like to reuse trailers um, as they go between sites or if we've got back-to-back -back loads of, of movements happening um, that it increases that frequency. And then certainly, I mean, there's there's times today where trailers may never see a wash um, as they go and, and back up to um, a packing plant today. And so some of the risks we have there is we don't have the capacity necessarily in our networks to actually incur that cost of all the trailer movements, um, whether it's internal or external. If you're using external methods, you're commingling with everybody else in the neighborhood um, and whoever might be passing through. And so that can be cause for concern. And then likewise, as we go through and you know do this wash procedure, depending on who's washing, I mean, I you see the gamut of level of training. Sometimes you've got internal staff members that go through um, a very specialized coaching procedure. I mean, that's what they do day in and day out. And there's probably um, people in place or supervisors checking in on that work. However, then there's the contract truckers that are very common to use. And I'd say almost nobody's checking in maybe on those things. And there's probably mm -hmm. a high degree of variability um, of the expectations that have been set and the training that's been put forth. Um, on how that all gets completed. Could the lack of biosecurity of another producer, how likely is it that would impact you within your system? Is this mainly a self-maintained thing where if you do a good job yourself, the inability of others to do it won't necessarily impact you because how it all works? Or if somebody else isn't doing it, can it, can it really ruin your day as well? There's certainly risk for that. I think there's plenty of data back um, when PED infiltrated the U.S. Certainly lots of um, sampling was done and projects completed to say, yep, PED can survive on trailers. You back up to a plant. Um, there's potential risk of contamination there, and you can trail that right back um, to where you are. And depending on what your procedures are internally, um, kind of dictates whether or not, you know, how high of a risk that is, I suppose, and so I would assume, yes, anytime, you know, any of your assets or trailers or things with wheels are coming in contact with something that you don't control, I would consider that a risk um, in terms of biosecurity if you don't know what that looks like on the other side. And then all comes back down to maybe what plans you have in place um, to control what you can control in that mm -hmm. scenario. So we're going to be talking about how we can assess truck wash systems, maybe the audits, uh, talk about common misses and opportunities found in those, how we measure our sanitation processes, some of the emerging viruses that are more hardier in the environment. Uh, before we get into that, if a producer is sitting there listening to this, philosophically, what needs to change or what needs to continue to grow or be reinforced before we go and talk about the what and the how to to see lasting change, maybe not an immediate change, but lasting change? Yeah, great question. Um, I think to drive some of these sanitation practices, I mean, anytime we want to implement biosecurity that comes with the cost, and, and we've touched on that a little bit earlier, 
And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm sitting here as, as a pig owner today, if I was, you know, looking at this and going, gosh, you know, I'm getting around okay today. Why do I need to double, triple, quadruple, you know, my cost in washing a trailer, you know, what, what impact does that make for me? Um, and, and I, I see more common practices being done of saying, Hey, maybe we can't do, um, a full scale wash where we've scraped, we've washed, we've disinfected. Maybe we've, um, baked that trailer, um, in between every single movement. Maybe we only do that for high health, but could we get away with, um, some intermediary steps maybe for trailers kind of downstream, if you will, and in terms of making an impact. And so going through that cost benefit analysis, looking at disease transmission, um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of anecdotal data, you know, that says, yep, if we at least rinse out, you know, trailers that go back and forth between market plants, we've over, we've observed less PD outbreaks in a calendar year. And that costs, you know, thousands, millions, um, whatever the term determination that is. And so I think getting buy-in, um, there is certainly important on, you know, we talk about biosecurity, but what is that impact on the system today and, and how do we make it a focus and not leave ourselves, I guess, unprotected in that sector, if you will, in terms of animal transportation. Is that frustrating as a veterinarian that some of the constraints or challenges that you face on maybe implementing best case, case practices make, might get in the way? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I, I feel for farmers. I mean, I, I grew up in that network and we, gosh, we, we'd all love to have our cake and eat it too. And sometimes it's, you know, we all work within a budget and that's very real today. And I'd love to be able to hand out the magic solution that, you know, reduced labor was reduced cost and got you better biosecurity. But oftentimes <laughs> that option doesn't exist. You can maybe pick two. You don't quite always get all three. Yeah. Yeah. And to listeners too, we're not heartless. We know the industry is going through a really hard time. And that's, that's exactly why we're talking about this, because if we don't do the right things consistently and continue to grow, we're going to keep going through hard times. So um, all this is with the best intentions. Uh, Andy, anything you want to add to the kind of the philosophical question or just what it's like to be a vet? And maybe sometimes it feels like you're beating your head against the wall. Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> Biosecurity is kind of like insurance. It is, I mean, it's how much mm -hmm. do you want to buy? And at what point do you stop buying more and more insurance coverage? And, uh, you know, it's so it becomes a, it's an easy item to kind of discount when you need to save some money. And, uh, where you look at how much you spend a year on insurance, i.e., biosecurity. So if we divide biosecurity up and uh, I, I kind of, if I break it down to like just sow farm transmission of pathogens versus, you know, pathogens getting transmitted by uh, transportation methodology or service personnel tracking it, uh, you know, we got, you kind of got, we spent all the money on debating aerosol transmission filters and not for, and then beating our personnel up on biosecurity when filters would have probably kept out a lot of that. Well, so, you know, we spent a lot of time kind of debating that as an industry. Um, today, you know, you look at the layers we build in trucking biosecurity, you know, and it's just layers of insurance. You know, we go from washing, we separate the washing out of solids, bring it to a separate site to clean and disinfect. Then we added baking. Some systems where they double wash these trucks and then disinfected them twice in two different sites in addition to baking. So yeah, I can understand, 
you know, there's some level of frustration. And at what point do we compensate for, you know, none of it's executed very well by adding layers of, mm-hmm. of, um, uh, insurance, you know, to at least one of them at some point will kind of give us the insurance we want. So to dive into this a bit deeper, how can we assess our truck wash systems and what does a truck wash audit really entail, Aaron? Sure. And so when I go to assess um, a truck wash or trailers themselves, um, I I take the approach of going, because every footprint is different, every system is different. I really want to understand the movements I want to understand overall flow of the site of where all this is happening, you know, who's coming and going, maybe who's responsible um, for different areas of the truck wash procedure and just, and just get a good overview of what that system does or how they operate day to day. And from there, um, it kind of assessing and understanding that inherently it's a dirty process. Dirty trailers come in. We get knee deep in manure, we crouch over, we scrape it out, we take the pickaxes and go to town and and try to get that done efficiently. And so, you know, there's all this manure handling that happens and we can assume that maybe it's disease X positive as the trailer comes in and we go through this wash process. And so how do we, A, clean out the trailer for good biosecurity, but then B, biocontain that mess that we've created or that mess that we've washed out? Um, and keep that handled in a secure way um, to hopefully not recontaminate um, anything else that would um, pinch point or come in contact with that wash. And so I kind of start there at the bird's eye level um, and then ask a lot of questions on, you know, what does personnel entry look like? And then, you know, what are we wearing as we um, are, are working today at, at the truck wash and, um, then what, you know, what does it look like from start to finish in, in terms of that and assess technique and, and different tools and supplies that are used? What does, what does the disinfectant process look like if there is one? Um, and then is there any additional secondary layers um, of disinfecting that happens to trailers? And, and ultimately it's going back and assessing, okay, you know, at the end of all this, what's the likelihood that we could or had any risk of recontaminating a trailer before it leaves again? Um, would be another big one. And so going through making that assessment um, and certainly doing a little diagnostic testing along the way helps. I wish it was real time. Usually we get those results after the fact, Um, but that's a nice useful tool as well to see kind of assessing what our risk is or what our contaminant load in certain areas are. So what are the common misses and opportunities that you find during truck wash audits? Sure, sure. It it can get really tough, you know, in some older layouts, especially if they're not single flow, if you will, you know, you don't, you might not always get the opportunity to to pull a trailer in on a designated dirty lot, you know, be able to pull it straight through a wash area into maybe a yellow zone, maybe can then pull it through another bake station or something along those lines. um, And then pull it out where it can park near other clean trailers. And so I, I go back through and say, okay, if that's maybe not the case, you know, then what happens in terms of flow of traffic and, and what becomes all the high traffic areas, not only for trailers, but also for people on the site, assuming that we're doing a dirty job and, and where are they all going and, and then what are they coming in contact with again? And so um, I'll go through and maybe take some environmental swabs of some of those points, whatever, wherever those are within the wash, sometimes they're the office wash phase, drainage um, zones, 
and, and kind of go through and say, okay, what's dirty? What do we expect to be dirty versus what are we expecting to be clean today? Um, and trying to get some data there to, to say, how are we doing in that? What, where can we improve? If we can't keep it clean, how do we at least maybe increase our sanitation frequency of these zones um, to prevent contamination throughout the sites? And so that's usually a big one. Um, the other comes down to actually washing the trailers themselves. Um, and, and sometimes the efficacy isn't always there. I think whoever's washing out a trailer has the best intent to remove some of the bulk material, but some of the detail work becomes really hard. And my personal soapbox is a lot of these livestock trailers, well, they were designed to haul livestock. They were not in any way, shape or form designed to be washed. And oh, so no kidding. It, it is a, a very hard job and I commend anybody that has to do that on a regular basis. Um, and so helping coach through that is probably another really big one in terms of technique and how we get that done consistently. That was how I got gas money in high school. My dad, he's like, all right, I, I have this semi I need to wash, but I'll, I'll give you a couple hundred bucks or something. You, it was a triple deck, so it took six hours. It was it was work. It, and you're right; it is not designed to be washed, especially in the winter when you got to take off all the stinking uh, panels. It's a process. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. So there's a lot to it, no doubt. Aaron, quick question for you, if you don't mind, Matthew. Sure. What what percent of the truck wash audits go um, are completed without observation of the people doing the disinfectant or washing process or both? Oh, hardly any. And so, of course, you know, it takes time to to sit down and, and maybe, you know, repeat, repeat the wash. But my goal is at least to assess uh, one trailer that was recently washed when I do an audit um, and, and kind of go through it and actually step in the trailer, maybe before we apply a disinfectant and see how we did from a flush or a power wash standpoint. Um, and then kind of then, okay, yep, say proceed. And then next step would be observing how they complete the disinfectant process. So very often that that would be a top priority to assess during all audits. When, when doing the disinfecting process, is there a recommended disinfectant that you guys use? Um, today it, it's system to system dependent, probably depending on, um, in just what their preference is. And, I, and I'm relatively flexible. I do prefer products that probably have a swine label for common swine pathogens, um, and taking into consideration, you know, what the expectation is maybe for contact time and dose. And certainly there's other safety considerations and, and things to make and maybe how pleasant it is when you apply it, you know, some are maybe stronger on the nose than others. Um, visibility and just kind of working through making suggestions there. I think there's a variety that that can be used today. Um, it's just kind of personal preference and, and making sure that we're doing a good job and, and getting it covered is, is my other priority there. Would you say it's synergizing and intervention are probably the most used amongst systems? Those, the would most be, common? those would be the top two. Another one that I've seen commonly is called extreme bio. Um, okay. Another one, just all of those that you can get in 55-gallon drums are usually pretty popular. They can have an inline um, free use. And all of those would have swine labels for all your you know, PED, PERS, all that good stuff. So how can we measure our sanitization processes and whether or not they're being performed well in the field? I mean, you talked about going into an audit and the opportunities of it and watching it during the audit. But what are some things we can do as producers outside of an audit to understand if we're consistently hitting hitting our expectations? 
Yeah, I think it's helpful um, to have a third person or a second person, depending on your structure, go in and inspect trailers after you've done a flush and power wash. Because really at that point, like there should be no visible organic material left within the trailer. And training these people to be very detail oriented is important. You know, take a flashlight with your headlamp. Um, and really go through, you know, checking behind all the hinges, lifting up all the gates, maybe dropping the ramp um, and looking at anything along those lines, just to make sure that there's no misses before we then proceed with the process. It really can take, I mean, as little as a minute, two minutes, and then identifying if we need to touch up some certain spots that can be really helpful. And it's less of a hassle there when you're in the wash bay to do that rather than have to pull the trailer back around if it fails an inspection um, after all the disinfection is complete. So that that's one I've seen reliably um, work the best. It's really hard to get a trailer 100% clean as in no organic material tucked between a, a hinge or, you know, something along those lines anywhere. But I'd say um, it gets us most of the way there. That okay. Makes- Mm-hmm. So one thing I've been hearing out with producers is that there's concern that some of the viruses are getting hardier and they're concerned whether or not the existing disinfectants are going to become obsolete or not useful anymore. So they consider, do I rotate disinfectants? Do I use two at the same time? Which if people were listening to a past episode, you know, that's not a great idea using two at the same time because they can counter counteract one another and basically make them completely useless. Uh, But what should we be concerned about the disinfectants that we use and this idea of diseases being potentially hardier? Yeah, good question. Um, There's been some data coming out um, in resistance of my, they per specifically to time and temperature in the environment. Um, A couple of different universities have looked at that. You know, Iowa State's also looked at PED, you know, and then some of these quote unquote more modern strains, maybe they're more virulent, um, whatever you want to measure, you know, they, they lay them out and say, okay, are they still alive after we leave them, you know, at a hundred degrees for seven days? And gosh, I think the answer, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't yes, maybe that long, but they, it was a couple days, which was, um, kind of surprising if we thought viruses preferred colder, cooler temperatures, And so all that said, um, we did ask that question of ourselves within um, Swine Vet Center and did work um, and test uh, different PERS strains. We had New Culture 144 and we've done, I think it was a 174 as well, partnered with the University of Minnesota um, and tested that with intervention um, today in, in a lab setting and just to validate all those things. And, and everything was just as effective as we would have expected, um, which was good news in that scenario. And so I think our disinfectants today overall are still very much a, effective for the viruses or pathogens that we're worried about. Um, it, what's changing is just that virus's ability to survive in a blank environment um, without a host And as long as we apply disinfectants correctly with contact times, shouldn't be an issue in my eyes. Andy, anything you want to add? Yeah, I think, you know, the viruses we're concerned about are are obviously, um, if we apply disinfectant thoroughly and and at the right concentration, they're very effective against uh, those viruses. The viruses we're concerned about, PERS and PED, have always been easy to kill. TG is part of that. And they remain today easy to kill at a variety of 
of various concentrations, you know, our, our labels, you know, say one thing, but we've tested it. The um, dilutions way less than that. And uh, they work on those viruses or, you know, now there's other viruses that are a lot hardier, like parvo and circle virus, where you need, you know, you know, you need every bit of the horsepower that you got in our disinfectants to, and the concentration needs to be right on label to kill those particular viruses. So, um, I, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, I've been learning that too, that it's, it's crazy how just by talking with your group and a bunch of other groups, just how the concentrations and the settings on the machinery and equipment, uh, aren't nearly as consistent and accurate as they need to be across the industry. And so there's a lot of little things we can do to be better uh, if we kind of check with what we're doing. I kind of wanted just to, I kind of went through and summarized some data we had uh, from one of our reps that's done a number of truck wash kind of audits. And the audits that we have typically done as, as intervention reps are different in it what uh Aaron Dr. Kettlecamp would be doing, evaluating the whole system and how trucks are flowing and the workplace would be very much focused on the kind of dilution process and the application process of disinfected. And so we took a just a subset of 16 uh, truck washes and six out of those 16 had dilution problems, either under or over dilution application. Um which was, you know, I guess I was kind of amazed and that was truck washes that, you know, we kind of routinely are routinely inspected by various personnel. A lot of them are uh, genetic stock haulers. Um, so they, it's not like they're, you know, uh, truck washes gets very little attention. Um, yeah. You know, the yeah, just imagine what it's in the South farm. I mean, those don't get near as much attention. Just imagine what that'd be like. Right. The other kind of biggie was, uh, you know, that we kind of would, uh, wonder about a lot of time is just coverage of the trucks completely. Uh, and there's a lot of variation, I think, in the industry between the methodology and how you disinfect a truck. Uh, a lot of times we see people just apply the disinfectant they're through foamers. They apply it from top to bottom, counting on a sort of a run of the foam all the way down the side of the truck. And uh, I've got pictures and video of where the foam breaks down by the time it gets to the back of the tailgate where the pig's nose, where it's just two lines of disinfectant coming in. Granted, that truck was clean and it went through some drying. So it goes back to, you know, all the steps of what we do. We clean, we dry, we disinfect, we dry again, you know, to kind of as, as uh, extra safeguards. But, you know, we were kind of relying on complete coverage of disinfectant, especially in touch spots, you know, of a pig's nose. Uh, high frequency traffic areas of the pig is at the back cut gate that, uh, you know, a third of that panel wasn't disinfected. Oh yeah. And you go through as Aaron suggested and her, her, uh, <laughs> her, uh, topic on, uh, just the way the trucks were designed. We go through all this work hours to wash a truck. <clears throat> and it's sad that in some situations, maybe an extra 60 seconds to five minutes can make all the difference. Right. So, yeah, we do do a substantial amount. We invest a substantial amount of time and cost into doing it. And uh, since from a lot of the things you guys are saying, it the the little things that are potentially catching us aren't the time-consuming things. 
And yeah, a little adds up to a lot, but we're already spending a lot of time in a truck washing it. So what would be your soapbox topic, Andy? We got errands. What's yours? Related to truck washes? <laughs> related yes, to Yes, and if you have a non-pig, well, yeah. <laughs> well, well, related to truck wash is, uh, you know, I, I honestly think we have, we we do kind of let economics get in the way of certain tasks that are done in the process. I had a, a very large system that they don't disinfect behind cut gates, you know, because it saves four minutes a truck. I kind of think that's cheap insurance to be buying, you know, for if it truly takes four minutes a truck to swing the cut gates and disinfect it behind it. So, that, you know, those are... I get, you know, related to this topic, you know, you kind of get beat up as a veterinarian and then, and, and being in the disinfected business on, you know, and we, the producers are spending a lot of money. We got a lot of money coming through checkoff dollars and various grants, you know, to evaluate trucking biosecurity. And, and we're arguing about four minutes. Um, you know, the, we, uh, we don't have a methodology. I don't think consistently across the industry that trains our personnel on how to wash and disinfect a truck and everybody dr- develops their own methodology, but you know, I, how do we do it? Is it top to bottom outside to inside front to back? You know, there's various things like that. It kind of goes back to the example of the guy spraying a disinfectant on tr- the top and letting it run down. If he started at the bottom and went all the way up that, you know, that wouldn't be a, never would be an option as a cause of failure. So I think there's a lot of those kind of little things that we're spending an awful lot of dollars, you know, to kind of chase some um, data. And uh, it's a a little bit of extra training. It's probably pretty cheap money spent. So we've talked a lot about uh, calls to actions for the producers. What advice would you guys have for veterinarians out there that might be, be be sitting in your very shoes? What advice would you have? I would say maybe trust, but verify, (laughs) Uh, verify that we're doing what we're saying we're doing. We probably have um, a lot of detailed SOPs and, you know, various other criteria that we expect to get done on a day-to-day basis. Um, Let's make sure there's some checks and balances just to make sure that um, someone's looking, someone's checking to, to say, yes, that trailer was fully washed. Um, I don't know how many times I've, I've been in trailers that were quote unquote washed and I, and I look in and look up at the ceiling and there's probably 10 years worth of dust, um, still sitting up at the top that we just didn't miss. We got the bottom half. Great. The top half, um, not so much. And so just verifying those procedures, if that's the expectation, um, or maybe creating some better, you know, guidelines for expectations, if that's the case and certainly using resources, you know, if there's more training that's needed, um, new fresh set of eyes that's needed to kind of go through some things. Um, and you don't have time to do it. Um, definitely phone a friend and, and figure out who the best person is to, to help with that task. Absolutely. And from you, Andy. I, I agree kind of with all that, that, uh, Dr. Kettlecamp, uh, spoke to, and, uh, you know, I think, I think we should, you know, spend more time with her staff that's doing the washing and uh, individually and and uh keep them the understanding of what they're doing is important uh and i know some of these staff members we turn it over but others truck washes we don't turn those staff over as much as you know sometimes we think we do so 
Um, yeah, and I mean, just in the industry too, biosecurity has impacted individuals going to conferences as well, or going to World Pork Expo, right. and so is labor. And so when we think about today's employees, they have indisputably attended less industry events than what we would have probably expected 10 years ago. And therefore, they're sitting in less informational sessions. They're interacting less within the industry, understanding the broader impact. You're not sitting there listening to Joe Kearns talk about the financial impact of something. Like you're just not getting those experiences. And so as producers, and I'm assuming as, as veterinarians, the that coaching component of helping them understand the broader impact and what the industry is talking about and why it matters, that's probably more important now than it's ever been. Well, there's some truth to that. I mean, trade shows are, you know, attendance is declining in trade shows because your staff staff on farms don't attend trade shows for all the reasons you've just stated. You know, the decision makers are still there, which is what everybody kind of worries about. But, you know, the routine farm traffic has declined to the point that, you know, there's, you know, a lot of trade shows are being discontinued where a lot of those, you know, people would have attended sporadically and and uh, picked up nuggets of information and questioned you. Oh yeah, I was I was at um, one farm. We'll call it Farm A. It's top ten system. A manager at the top ten system. Been raising pigs for eighteen to twenty years. And uh, we asked, hey, there's another individual from another top ten system. They'd really like your feedback. That individual said, who are they? <laughs> that was crazy for me me to imagine. But when we're hiring people in this industry. If they're not traveling to industry events, it's the company they're in, and that's it. There's not that knowledge of what are all the other companies, who else is out there. Um, so it's, I think it's very important we continue to coach. And, and I'm really grateful that you guys were both able to join uh, Dr. Andy Holtkamp, Dr. Aaron Kettlecamp. Thank you so much for being guests on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a real pleasure, and, and thank you guys for sharing your honest opinions and advice. And uh, Hopefully we continue to get better at this as an industry. Thanks so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Nice visit with both of you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.